You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 131. We'll be talking about home care workers and what the latest health care proposals mean for the workers and for your family. But first, the news. For travelers across the country this summer, air rage is everywhere, with scheduling chaos, power outages, protests, and even violent assaults and stampedes filling the airport terminals. This week in Denver, Philly, New York, and New Jersey, airport workers finally got just as fed up as their passengers. They announced plans to strike and shut down the airport's service workforces, including baggage, maintenance, and cleaning workers. And just as workers were walking off the job Tuesday night, the service company that manages the workers in Philadelphia and the New York area agreed to return to talks to hammer out a fair contract. But their union, SEIU32BJ, says a strike could be called at any time in the coming days if the strikes broke down, that is, as of Thursday. One group of workers did continue striking, the workers in the Denver airport. Like the East Coast workers, they are too frustrated by low wages, erratic schedules, and deteriorating stressful working conditions. Um, Unlike the other workers, they do not have a union yet, so they are pushing for both the right to a union and improved working conditions. And there has been progress in recent months. SEIU to unionize the uh, Philadelphia International Airport. Thousands of New York and New Jersey airport workers scored their first union contract in December. And earlier this summer, Boston and Chicago airport workers went on strike too. I spoke earlier this week with Charles. He was one of the airport service workers at the Denver airport who went on strike. He explained what $15 an hour would mean to him, up from the $13 he's currently making, and he talked about why he wants a union too. What difference does fifteen dollars make versus thirteen? I think a little bit more money will make make it uh, a little easier for me to have my own place because we we all know how uh, the cost of living here is in Colorado is pretty expensive to have my own place. Some people might be happy with just, you know, making a little more an hour. Why why go all the way for a union? Well, uh, well for one, uh, there's a lot of good people that's came there because it's a lot of it's favoritism going on at, at the workplace. Uh, it seems like that they don't care that we express our problems or situations that we have. They just put it to the side throw it to the side, don't worry about it no more, and a lot of people leave because of that, but it seems like they don't care about the workers. That was Charles in Denver Airport. If every airport worker nationwide were earning $15 an hour with the union, we'd be looking at a very dramatically different aviation landscape. According to a new report from Economic Roundtable, Quote, when 246,000 low-paid U.S. airport workers win a $15 minimum wage, their aggregate raise in the first year will be $1.8 billion, supporting 22,512 new year-round jobs. And that's a calculation for about 2,000 airports around the country. So, next time you're stuck in line at the counter thinking about it, A more labor-friendly airport wouldn't just help the workers. A better-supported labor force might also improve your next travel experience, and it might even make the communities you fly home to a little friendlier as well. This week saw the first large-scale nurses strike in the city of Boston in 30 years at Tufts Medical Center, where 1,200 nurses walked off the job Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. At issue was a need for more nurses, more time with patients, and patient safety, as well as wage increases and a shift to pensions that would require workers to contribute more. Nurses were joined on the picket lines by iron workers, builders, teachers, and firefighters. Every day, the hospital sends RNs blast text messages asking them to pick up shifts that are open due to the bare-bones approach management uses to staff the hospital, said the nurses' union in a statement. A report says that the replacement nurses who are brought in to fill in for the strikers are costing $6 million, the hospital. Money, of course, that the striking nurses say could be put towards their demands for hiring more nurses to work alongside them, not to replace them, and to stabilize their pensions. 
The one-day strike turned into a lockout, as nurses' strikes often do when they attempted to return to work on Thursday and were told that their replacement workers would be on the job until Monday. For nurses and other care workers to strike requires planning, commitment, and external organizing. If not, the boss's rhetoric that the nurses do not care for their patients and are simply being selfish can easily win the day. Of course, that is uh, undermined by the fact that the bosses then choose to keep their replacement workers on the job for four more days. The Tufts nurses are some of the lowest paid nurses in the Boston area, and their demands for more nurses and more time with their patients do, in fact, align with the needs of the patient population. Additionally, since we're talking about health care today, it's worth noting that Tufts treats a higher percentage of Medicaid patients than the other Boston hospitals do, and Medicaid is on Trump, McConnell, and Paul Ryan's chopping block. Nurses, like the other care workers we'll talk to a little bit later, are a critical part of the nation's healthcare infrastructure, but their labor is rarely treated as such. United Auto Workers Union just announced that workers at a Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi, the new ground zero for organizing the South, will, after several years of organizing, finally get a formal union election, hopefully within the next few weeks. It's been a long slog, and we've highlighted the massive organizing campaign earlier this year on Belabored when we talked to Danny Glover at a rally with Bernie Sanders and Nina Turner and a bunch of other groups uh, adding momentum to the unionization push. The campaign has attracted everyone from the Sierra Club to the NAACP in recent years, and it could be a milestone for unionizing the South. Workers say that labor and safety conditions, wages, and benefits have deteriorated at the Nissan plant since the plant first moved in in the early 2000s, promising decent jobs. With a union, they could negotiate a fair contract, and more importantly, they say that they can bring Nissan's U.S. facilities in line with the rest of its automaking empire. More than 40 Nissan plants around the world all have unions, except, curiously, their U.S.-based factories. Meanwhile, the workforce has been plagued in recent months with major workplace accidents, which has fueled the drive for union representation. But UAW says that Nissan's anti-union campaigning has been fierce, so it's difficult to see whether they've got enough support right now from the majority of the 5,000 or so employees at the plant. The Canton campaign is one of many efforts undertaken by the UAW to penetrate the South as more auto firms move to set up shop there and take advantage of lower labor standards as well as uh, the right-to-work laws that keep those states pretty much union-free. Today, only about 7% of Mississippi's total workforce, about 73,000 workers, belongs to a union, and poverty is rife. The question of whether UAW still has the political savvy and mass appeal to mobilize a majority of workers at any of the new auto plants across the South remains an open question. A few thousand additional UAW members in Canton would be a major boon for labor in Mississippi, and as workers head towards their hard-fought union vote, the stakes are high, and the world is watching to see if labor in the South can finally rise again. As a journalist and media researcher, I followed the decline of the nation's newspapers in great detail for many years. As formerly solid papers in two paper towns like the Rocky Mountain News shut down and others like the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philadelphia Daily News merge into one. Chicago looked likely to follow that pattern, with the lead buyer for the Chicago Sun-Times being, up until recently, Tronk, Inc., T-R-O-N-C, we should say, which owns the Chicago Tribune as well as several other papers. But instead, a coalition that includes major labor organizations came together and is purchasing the paper. The Chicago Federation of Labor and several unions not yet named at the time of recording are investing in the paper to keep it independent and to keep it a voice for Chicago's working people. A great group has come together and made sure that a genuine voice with honest and good reporting that connects with working men and women thrives, said former alderman Edwin Eisendrath, who led the group. Our investors include more than half a million hardworking people around Chicago, and you can bet we'll be talking with a voice that resonates with the working class. We're going to organize around that to raise circulation. The Chicago News Guild, which represents the writers and newsroom employees at the Sun-Times and the Chicago Reader, also part of the deal, had been opposed to Tronk buying the paper and told reporters we're thrilled with this development. Media watchers on our side of the aisle have often suggested that organized labor should invest in newspapers, particularly as labor coverage like the kind provided by your belabored hosts has been in decline for longer than newspapers have. 
And the labor folks involved in this purchase seem to be aware of the fact that they can reach an audience that has long been neglected by newspapers in favor of the rich readers that draw high-end advertisers. We got involved to protect the institution of journalism, but it's not just about keeping the paper's doors open. The Sun-Times is a historic paper, and we've been given the opportunity to transform it. We've got a lot of exciting ideas, Chicago Federation of Labor Secretary-Treasurer Bob Ryder said. The little guy won here, added CFL President Jorge Ramirez. This week, the Republicans are launching yet another attempt to take health care away from millions of people and give a handful of rich folks a tax cut. Most of the stories around the health care bill have focused on who is going to lose coverage under it, rightly as the cuts to Medicaid alone will have a staggering death toll if they pass in the current form. But there's another section of people who will lose out if Medicaid is slashed, one that has received less attention, healthcare workers. Specifically, home healthcare aides, who are in one of the fastest growing jobs in the country, and one done overwhelmingly by women, women of color, immigrant women, the least powerful people in our country, and those already being scapegoated by the Trump administration. Estimates that some 300,000 to 700,000 home health care jobs could be lost or out there, depending on which version of the bill makes it out, if any of them do. I have a story out on this this week at The Guardian, and I spoke with Miami home health care worker June Barrett, a member of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, about her experiences as a home care worker and as an organizer fighting to keep her health care and to keep care for hundreds of thousands of care recipients around the country. Are you following what's going on in Congress with the health care bill at all? Oh, my God. Christ. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Right now, we don't, we, right now, we're not sure what's going on. I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, we don't know what's going on. But the first bill, um, I would say that um, the, the first bill that they put out, that was like a dead trap. What should people know about your work that most people don't know or they sort of get wrong or misunderstand? Uh, one thing about my work, uh, people think, uh, believe that a lot of people are ignorant. They believe that your only job with the elderly is to wipe their butts. Yeah. And I hear that a lot. They, they just reduce us to shit cleaners. Excuse my expression. Yeah. And that's the truth. I'm, I'm angry about that. Yeah. No. We are people who get care. We are people who are responsible for life. Right. We are people who have to make sure they they're meet their nutritional needs. We have to meet their physical needs. We have to make sure that their medications are dispensed properly. Yeah. We have to care and protect them. I'm, I'm responsible for those lives when I'm with them. Mm-hmm. I'm totally responsible for them until the next shift comes. And what, what I want people to know is that it's not a job that we, people think that because or they, they see other people with less um, education and therefore the work that we do do not have any value. My work has a lot of value. Yeah. My work is real work. My work is very important work. Not just important work, but very important work. And I like people to start seeing her work as real work, as important work. Without my work, the person's daughter, before I came along, they were, she wasn't able to have a normal life. She wasn't able to go on vacation with her husband. Yeah. Her marriage was falling apart because she could not find stability for her parents. Now her life is normalized because of my work. Okay, my work as a caregiver, since two and a half years, begins at 5 p.m. in the evening. Mm-hmm. So I get to work at 5 p.m. in the evening, and there are two other young women who are, are there in the day for eight hours per day. So I have to discuss, you know, the days uh, proceeding with them. Right. So we they hand me the shift at uh, 5, and then by 5, I have to start getting dinner ready. Right. So they are in their 90s, and they eat pretty well. They eat at least three three main courses for the evening. So my evening begins with preparing dinner and doing the main course, then getting into the the, 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 the dinner. And then after dinner, we do the dessert, of course. Right. And then it's time to prepare for bed. So Mr. Person, 
right. he's able to walk to his room and to go to bed on his own. But Mrs. Purse is dependent on me for care. She's dependent on Right. Oh, and then uh, I have to come back to the kitchen. I have to clean the kitchen. Then I like to prepare stuff for the next morning. Right. And then during the night, I go between her room and his room. I get some time to be at my computer. Sometimes I even I take a nap, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a 16-hour shift. Right. But during the night, I have to constantly check on her. Like a child, I have to make sure she's dry. And he sleeps most times through the night, but I still have to go and check to make sure, you know, he's breathing or to make sure that he's not on the floor. You know, you go back and forth for the whole night. I said there are periods of times when I get, you know, maybe three, four hours of quietness. She's, because she doesn't sleep. Oftentimes she's awake at night. Right. Yeah. You know? I mean, how much sleep do you normally get? You know, sleep, if you are, for example, if she, the other day she was having problem with bronchitis. But yeah. there are times when when I know he's safe and she's completely quiet. And I can take a nap a long time, yeah. you know, along with her when she's taking a nap. Because I'm constantly on my feet. I would have been burnt out now right. for almost four years, you know. Right. In fact, December is going to be four years since I'm doing the work. I'm working for this particular family. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't get a chance to, even if you take a nap, it's very, at the sound of any slight sound, you're out of that nap. Because remember, that safety is why you're there at night. You have to make sure that she's in the bed and that he's not on the floor. Because he's on another side of the house completely. Yeah. So you see what I mean? I have to go between both sides of the house. Are they on medications and things that you have to remember that they get too? No, they're both on medication. Yeah. So I have to make sure that he gets his, his uh, bedtime medication. I have to make sure that she gets her bedtime medication. And she doesn't like to take the medication. So we have to be creative about how we, you know, we give the medication to her. We have to find creative ways, either putting it in a, you know, our favorite sweet dish. Yeah. And, you know, we have to be, and then she finds out, and then we have to find another way because she has to get her medication. Right, right. She has dementia, right? She has a, a little bit of dementia going on there. You know, a little bit of dementia. Not like an advanced stage of dementia, right, yeah. but some dementia is there. Yeah. What's the hardest part of your job? Oh, my God. The hardest, hardest part of my job. And I, I don't like to, because also we're going to talk about the good part of my job. Of course. We're not just going to, like, I don't like to be. But the other part of my job is having to care for, the, the, you know, the wife, Mrs. Person. Yeah. Because the measure, you know, she can be difficult. Right. Yeah. And what I've had experience in this field, I've worked with people who have had, I've worked with an artistic child who was violent. I've worked with, you know, advanced stage of dementia. I've worked with right. just nasty, racist people. Right. Oh, Working with her and why I was I, I survived all these years yeah. was because I developed like a kind of way to deal with her based on past experiences that, that I've had. It's difficult, but I but when I give her care, and that's one of the reasons why I survived. Right. I give her her care from a place of empathy. I give her care because yeah. she deserves care. Yeah, yeah. I give her care because she she she. She was an advocate for education. She's responsible for our community school being so successful in South yeah. Florida. I give her care. I see a warrior woman. And so all the nasty stuff that she say to me, all the scratches that I have on my arm from her, that just come as a part of the process of the right. job. Because yeah. she, in her time and reading about her and seeing the work that she did for people in South Florida, yeah. it gives it motivates me to give her the care that I believe yeah. she deserves. Uh, so, what's the part that you like the most about your job? <laughs> for the fabulous um, caregivers, one of them is my twin sister, Judy. Yeah. The second part about my job is that I got involved with the domestic workers movement. Uh, last year, July, when we had her, I've always been active, been, you know, right. involved in activism. Right. But it was always, you know, not coming out at my job because I was afraid that if they know my, about my politics, 
Right. I didn't want it to get involved with work. So I've kept my politics, including my queerness, quiet. But when they started organizing domestic workers in South Florida, I was on fire. And I remember going to the assembly and I remember saying to myself, I want to be a part of this movement of change. And I remember oh, I got back to work and I called Judy. Oh, Judy is the daughter and she's responsible for employing people. She's responsible for making sure we get paid. So she's my boss. Yeah. And I called Judy and I said, Judy, I would like to have a word with you and your father. And I told her, uh, I said to her, listen, I didn't come to work yesterday because, you know, they always want, when you work for, you know, for families, especially white families, you always have to tell them a long story of, Yes. Why you want a day off? And I didn't say anything to them. I just asked for the day. So I said to her, I went to, they have this domestic workers assembly. This is, it was exciting. I went to them for this movement to come to South Florida. I'm sorry, but if this movement needs me, I'm going to, I'm going to be yeah. there. I said, you can, if you want, you can fire me, but please give me two weeks notice so I can find another job. And to my surprise, Mr. Person and Judy said, no, no. You are do this is going to be a work that you will be doing that you are interested in. We are interested in you. Right. And immediately, Mr. Percy gave me a check and said, Donate this to the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Since that day, I've traveled a lot. I've traveled talking on behalf of, of my fellow domestic workers, doing a lot of um, rounds and in DC. And I just got back from Nicaragua. I've, I've been traveling, and every time I travel, the family made a promise to me. They said, every time you leave a business for domestic workers' movement, we will pay you for every missed day from work, and they pay me for every day that I'm away traveling. And not only that, since this year, they said, listen, we, want, we don't want you to go and fight this fight without we being a part of this. And effective this year, everyone in this household, we get paid sick days, we get um, paid vacation. Every every one of the women get their paid vacation last year, and it is going to continue as long as we are in that employment. So there are good things happening on my job, so I yeah. need to talk about that. Yeah, I think I think one of the things about this work that I, you know, people don't understand a lot of things about how hard it is, but also don't understand that it could be a really good job that people would really actually like to do this work if it was paid and treated well. Yeah, but you got to, one of the things you got to understand too, that a lot of the women who do this work, we're trying to organize women. And a, and a lot of women, the first thing they say to you, I'm not a domestic worker. And I try to explain to them why we have to use the word domestic work, you know, or the National right. Domestic Work of the Land. And I understand, because for me, for many years when I do this work, I work under some of the most horrific conditions a human being could ever work under. Right. My self-esteem was stripped from me, and some of the jobs I've been in, corporate stuff have been said to me. Right. And I can understand why other women, they do this job, but you know what? They do it because it's a, it's a pain. You understand what I mean? They just do it because at the end of the month, there's a, and a lot of women say that, right. you know, I just do this work because, you know, so they don't put a lot of emphasis and the work, but right. if if they can regain their own self worth, their own dignity, they can do this work with pride. You know, as I do this work with pride, because I realize that it is important work, it is real work, right. and because of me, yeah. my boss Judy is away on a vacation now. She wasn't able to leave South Florida because of her parents, but now that she have beautiful, no, she have good staff now. Four of us been there. Right. She's able to live out. You know. A much stress-free life, you know, right. and worry less about going away or anything. Right. Give me a little bit more about like the day-to-day -day of some of your other jobs too. Okay, there was one job that I worked when I when I uh, first um, started working as a, a when I first started when I came to Florida. Right. There was one job that I have, and I spent six and a half years on that job, right. and. The very first time I went on the job, I was told that it might be difficult, I mean, difficult relationship because the parents have never really having to deal with uh, a black person yeah. or having, you know, a black person so, so 
in their space. So they're not sure how this relationship will work, but right. if they're willing to try me, you know, it was only a two-bedroom house. So the, 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 the daughters decided that I, I would have to stay in the guest room. Right. They were in another room at the front of the house. I think the third night, um, uh, the lady of the house, she went into the guest room and she said, what are your things doing in the guest room? And I said, um, you, uh, your children said, you know, this is where I'm going to stay to care for your husband. And she said, you must be out of your cotton picking mind. I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> and she said, you must be out of this. It is not your place to be in here. And I remember she threw my little bag. I had a little bag. She threw it out. And she, the last thing she did was to rip my cell phone from the wall and throw it, splash it across the wall and say, you don't set your foot back in this room. And I began to panic because at the time, if she had asked me to leave, I would have been homeless. I didn't have anywhere to go. So I went to her husband and I said to the husband that, um, your wife does not want me to sleep in the guest room. And he said to me, there's nothing I can do. If my wife doesn't want you in the room, there's nothing I can do. And I remember um, they had a study and I was my room, the study. Yeah. I kept myself in the, in the study. And she, I mean, it was the nastiest, meanest job that I've ever done. I, I was called the N-word. Um, for she wouldn't let me touch her, and it was just horrible. It was just the most horrible experience. And when she was like, when she would, um, when she would be mean to me, I remember one day I tried to say to the daughter that yeah. she was being really nasty, and the daughter said to me, "It is you're not here to talk about what my mother is doing to you. You are here." to care for my mother. And I kept her abuse for another four years. I kept her abuse and I kept silent to myself. I never talk about all the abuse I was going through in the house. And then eventually she, she got ill. She had um, shingles yeah. and I got chicken pox from the shingles. So people need to know that as caregivers, we're right. also vulnerable to, to, to illnesses. Right. Yeah. So, but the worst part of this job, why I eventually, after five and a half years, having to, to leave this job, being sick, was that she had shingles, that I had chicken pox, because if you have never had chicken pox, right. you cannot be around people with shingles. You will get um, uh, chicken pox. Yeah. So, and because I'm asthmatic, I was so ill. I had to care for myself. No caregiver could come in the environment mm -hmm. that was contaminated. I had to. I have to care for the, for her. I have to care for myself. Right. Hence, I just suffer like I. I have a physical breakdown more than a nervous breakdown. Yeah. I, the family never cook a night dinner, never cook a bowl of soup, and take it over and said, "Give this is for you and mom." And both girls were living like five minutes down the road mm -hmm. from their mother. So all those months when I when I was so ill from chicken pox, because adult people don't know adult chicken pox is more dangerous than yeah. when you get it as a child, and, yeah. and I had it, you know. So I was so ill. Eventually, I burned out, and I had to just leave the the, 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 the um the employment. And she died about three weeks after I left because I was totally physically mm -hmm. not able to do anything for myself. Right. So three weeks after she died from the complications of shingles. Yeah. She almost took me with her. Yeah. So they didn't care. They didn't see me as, I think in that case, they didn't see me as a human being. They didn't see me as a human being. And that's the, the trouble with this job. That people, is that nothing has changed from the death from slavery, domestic work, and, and you know, and being, you know, in, in the days of slavery. For me, in this work, nothing has changed. I always say that white people are always in a plantation mode, M-O-D-E. Nothing has changed. They still call us girls. They still don't want to pay. 
So that's why this movement, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and other organizations, this movement is critical. This movement is vital. This movement is important. That's why I, I like to call it a movement of change. So the last time we talked, we hadn't seen the uh, the latest version of the healthcare bill from Congress. But um, have you been involved in anything, any work down there around the healthcare bill? Yeah, yes, the, the Miami Workers Center they just employ an uh, organizer exclusively to deal with the the healthcare situation and to organize people around that. And uh, three weeks ago, we had a press conference at um, Senator Marco Rubio's office. And I was one of the people who gave testimony as to why, you know, they should really, really fix Obamacare instead of repealing it. Right. You know? Because I'm one of the people that it will affect because of my many pre-existing conditions. You know? What else should people know about how the, the health care would affect you and your work? You know, it, as I said, with this work that we do, yeah. we do not have, I like to use the word, a safety net. For example, it's my savings that I will have to depend on. Remember, I, it's not like I work with a company or whatever. And even if you work through an agency, because I've worked through many agencies before, there is no provision. You get hurt on the job. Families, there's nothing, there's no law that says families should, um, you know, should look after you, you know, yeah. or anything like that. There's no law. So if you get ill, like uh, a family can't just give you a last paycheck and send you home. Right. You understand what I mean? Right, yeah. You understand what I'm saying? So in my, I got a, I have a bad hip and I got that hip from lifting my client. Okay, we did all the tests in the world. I, I've been to the physical therapy, the, the, the doctors, and everyone said it was strained based on how I lift the client. Yeah. Now, if I should, if I should, for example, I go to University of Miami, and my bill is, yeah, it was like 400 and something dollars, everything or whatever, and after the, the, the insurance, I only pay two something. But what I'm trying to say is that um, if I should do surgery, it's it. Yeah. Yeah, and I saw what I mean, because it's still hurting. It's still hurting. Right. This new um, health bill is going to affect me. Right. Yeah, and I saw what I mean. Yeah. I'm, I'm, asthmatic. I'm asthmatic. Okay. I'm asthmatic. Uh, see, the medication, I used to pay like almost 600 a month. See, you're looking at them. Yeah. yeah. This stuff I have to take. Okay. Now, I pay like, uh, I pay at CVS, I pay like about less than 50 a month now. Yeah. How can you beat that? That's pretty good. How can you beat that? Less than 50 a month. And my, my policy went up. My policy went up, but guess what? I eat out less. I don't go to the movies much anymore. And I, I, I gladly pay my policy. My policy went up. So we have, there's something is wrong with Obamacare. Yeah. But for me, it's working for me. Yeah. My policy went up to $344. Mm-hmm. But I gladly pay. I understand what I mean. I need affordable health care. Yeah. Without that, I'm going to go back to, you know what used to happen? I used to go to the car. It was so much money. I used to say, just give me two weeks supply of the blood pressure medicine. So, and then the next week I buy another two weeks, you know, so it was right. a mess. And for the, since Obamacare, I, I just go pick up my medicine and come home, you know? Right. Yeah. So, so I, 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 you know, I, to be honest with you, I'm very anxious about this healthcare thing. I'm so anxious because, you know, I need all my medications to survive. And that was June Barrett, Miami home healthcare worker and member of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And now we're talking to Director of Research Sabo Ahid from the UCLA Labor Center. They just put out a big report on home care workers in California and the role of Medicaid and other federal sources on supporting both the workers and the people who receive the care. Turns out everybody here is struggling.
in light of the findings of your report and how much home care is already costing people already, what can we say now about the latest Republican health care proposal? The Senate bill, though it's somewhat different from the House bill, will still have kind of the same harmful impacts on communities, um, especially those that need home care. So for us, our findings were showing that, you know, a lot of people use uh, public funding for home care and any cuts to the home care work or to Medicaid will negatively impact families basically that are trying to get that home care support. Is the issue primarily that um, people might lose Medicaid coverage? Like how would that change for Californians specifically? Sure. Yeah. So our our study, I mean, there was a few things. Um, first, we have to, we could talk about the people who are making, who are paying for home care. But even before that, there's so many people out there that are doing unpaid care. So even across the country, there's about 43 million adults that are providing unpaid care to an adult or a child with with um, disabilities. And most of that's, you know, family members. So first you have that batch, you know, who most likely can't even afford to hire for some care. And, you know, for us, it's like we're thinking about it in the way that you think about child care. You know, you can end up having to pay 20, 30, 40, 100,000 if you need kind of 24 hour care. And who is able to pay that, you know, with the work or, you know, if you think of folks who largely need home care support are often retired and seniors um, and they certainly don't have the kinds of resources to even do that. So then, you know, then you kind of look through the government to come in and really support um, folks who need that care. And so, you know, in our survey, we did find that almost two thirds, so about 61% do get government funding, but even those who are getting government funding about 20% of them are still paying something out of pocket. So, you know, there's there's the kind of inability to get funding to begin with. And then even when you are able to get some kind of funding, you're still not getting enough to pay for all of your needs. And so we found that a lot of families, they, they need more hours. They're not getting all the support that they're getting for the ones who are getting support from the government. Most of those folks said that it's because of the limitations of hours on that government funding. Then on the other side, you have the folks who have to pay out of pocket. And, you know, like I said, it can go, you know, the price of home care can go anywhere from like tens of thousands to over 90,000. And so these folks, they would be people who don't have income low enough to get care, but they, you know, they need care, so they have to pay somehow. And so they may have either their own savings or, you know, getting support from family or friends, you know, very few actually have long-term care insurance. Um, And then a third of the folks who are paying out of pocket, you know, they don't have any resources. So most likely, you know, the person who's paying, which, you know, it could be me paying for my father, or it could be, you know, my father paying for himself. Um, A third of them don't have any resources. So they're probably paying from like having to work to basically pay for their home care. And they need the home care so they can work. Like it just becomes this vicious cycle where. Yeah. And for like a lot of like, you know, say a relative or a child of home care, some of those are also trying to get care on the other end, which is their children, you know, so, you know, they're often called the sandwich generation, which who are trying to support the home, like the the person, you know, the the parent, and then also their own children. Um, and, you know, for me, like, when I think about this, I'm like, you know, this should not even be a, bi- a bipartisan issue. Like, we should be looking at home care the way we look at child care. And, you know, there was, like, a lot of stuff around the um, the elections around, you know, paid family leave and, you know, we really have to like address childcare and support, you know, largely women um, working in the workforce. And I feel like we, we're we we're still not thinking about home care in that same way. It's like, no, like we really need to be supporting families. You know, all the people who are providing that unpaid care are cutting into their work lives, you know, are cutting into, you know, their own abilities to kind of, you know, support themselves or their own families. Um, so, the, you know, the costs are like basically spreading all over a family. Yeah, um, and I think one of the reasons maybe that there is, uh, you know, um, long-term care is treated 
differently than something like childcare is because our current childcare subsidy system is largely based on the private market and schools and uh, healthcare is like such a third rail. It's like such a toxic issue that even something as basic as home care seems to be suddenly controversial, you know? So, um, and I guess, you know, that's, that's pretty sad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really hope we'll go through a cultural shift and maybe because a lot of the increase of like the age group that's going to need home care, it's it's growing year by year. So in the next 20 years, you will see this kind of lopsided population that are getting older. And, you know, home care is not health health care directly. It's, you know, you're you're older, you want to live at your live in your home, but you might have some trouble with some of your daily activities and being able to hire somebody um, to, you know, provide that support that allows you to kind of live independently. And I feel like as more and more people enter that generation, then hopefully there'll be like more of a pushback in terms of like, no, we should have better policies to be supporting our seniors or supporting people with um, disabilities who, you know, work and want to be able to live independently, but need that additional support. California system is unique in the sense that you know, first of all, it's a largely unionized workforce, if I'm not mistaken, right? I mean, um, since the 90s, there's been a really big effort to um, make this workforce as unionized as possible. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just thinking, um, you know, it's a pretty grim picture in California, but it, it's somewhat better than in other places, for at least from in terms of the, you know, the, the job quality, it seems like there's less turnover. I mean, like, it, can you just explain how the work is might be different in California? Yeah, I mean, I think it is the thing that you name, which is that there, for the unionized workforce, you do have kind of more negotiated, um, like, more more negotiated relationships between the government agency, the home care, the the worker and the the person who's receiving the care. Um, so I think that it gives it a little bit more formality. But the thing is, it's like, it's kind of like of of the workers, which is largely kind of the, the government funded workforce, they are, um, they have more structure for sure. But then there still is that gray, there still is a gray market here, which is, you know, all the kind of paying under the, under the table or hiring kind of more from the domestic worker and you know there's efforts there to kind of lift up those workforces you know there's folks like filipino worker center who have a worker cooperative that are trying to kind of create more structure um, and more standards for those you know those home care workers that are kind of not getting government funding and those employers that aren't getting government funding because that's still like more than a third of the employers you know who are still needing that care, but don't have kind of the incomes low enough to be able to get medic Medicaid. You talked about how different people with different needs, some people are hiring a caregiver um, for a family member and others need it for themselves. Um, what are these, how do their needs differ? And I guess why is... I guess like, you know, how does the how does that change the economics of the household? Because if you're a person with a disability, I, I presume that maybe your income is even more limited in some ways. Yeah, well, I mean, a good portion of our all of our employers are low income or have very low income, you know, which then in turn also led to low wages, at least for the ones who are paying out of pocket. Um, but, you know, like like the like the disability thing you know so it could it could be someone who's not working it also could be someone who is working um but also still needs additional care and then you know the one who's hiring for somebody else you know it could be the same household it could also be you know i live in my house but i'm doing i'm i'm basically paying for someone to come to you know a relative's house and kind of covering all of that you know like so so the households could be very complicated in terms of like who's paying who's hiring who's getting the support in addition to kind of the funding sources um but the the other thing i want to say just around that and especially around the kind of disability thing is um, that kind of definition, like there's a couple of things, like one is like kind of the definition of disability. So a lot of folks who may not have kind of qualified for like the kind of the whatever the the terms of, you know, to be considered disabled, um, 
were able to get to get Medicaid when the expanded ACA came through. So, you know, there's that's one way where folks were able to get more coverage who weren't able to before because, um, you know, the expansions led to, you know, fam like low income family members in a much broader way, um, as well as which a lot of folks who had disabilities but couldn't get it before were able to get it after. Um, and the other thing is this this thing around um, what they're calling like institutional bias, which is there's a lot more funding that comes down for nursing homes. And, you know, what the expanded ACA also did is that it actually provided more money for people to have the care in their house. And I think that that's, that's such a big component of it. Like there's so much research out there that talks about how, you know, people being able to live in their own house to be able to be like in the community that they're very familiar with and walk to the stores that are close by, like that the, the kind of health outcomes are much better than the ones that are kind of, you know, set into like put into the institutional settings. And that'll be like a, another kind of hit to, you know, the community because Medicare is still set up to provide either nursing home funding or kind of short term kind of hospice care, but doesn't really support this kind of like long term home care support that a lot of folks need. And so you either, you know, go into the nursing home or you kind of, again, go into the gray market or into all of these other places of family care or, um, you know, uh, or no care, um, kind of depending on your resources. You mentioned there like sort of the array of benefits that are available. There's a chance that that might be another way that the healthcare reform will uh, curtail these services, right? It's not just a straight up, you know, defunding of the program, but they might actually cut out whole swaths of the services that are available to certain people with certain conditions, right? Right. I mean, so one part of it will be what will it change of what's already existing? And the other is it will just straight out cut certain things. And a lot of what came, I mean, all, like both plans are basically like, we're gonna cut expanded ACA period. And that expansion was, you know, like say for in one family, like, you know, the child could receive um, receive subsidies, but the parent could not in this, in the expanded ACA, the whole family could. And then like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, a person with a disability that didn't qualify under the definition of disability was able to then get support because individuals were, individual, low income individuals were able to get a lot more support. Um, so all of that stuff would be gone. And then, you know, there was a, a there was um, a state level, like you could get 6% more funding for home care specifically, um, which was like one specific program that came under ACA that increased funding for home care support, gone. You know, so those things will just be gone. Um, and then, you know, the per capita, you know, the block grants and all of that is basically rather than, you know, giving states funding based on need is basically giving them a flat amount. And then states will have to, you know, kind of reallocate that money, but it won't be enough, you know, and that's, that's the concern is that they'll have to basically like work with a lot less money. Yeah, and that's how that's what was done to a lot of other welfare programs as well. Exactly. The the first thing states will have to figure out is what to do with the gap, and the 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 biggest concern would be either you take the gap for what it is, and and again reallocate or rethink how you're spending that money and how you can either make it up locally or reduce benefits or you know like that would be one way. But then the other is like you know, taking money from other public benefits. And that's not necessarily a better thing either because you don't really want to cut into education or transportation or somewhere else in order to fill that gap. Um, so I think that unless like states have some local resources and I don't think even in the past year over the state budget, there was some effort to move around some funding from the state to the local. And that already, you know, there was such a like conversation around how that that was just not going to be possible that the local kind of um, counties weren't able to take that on. So I think it's going to be a real burden um, for folks. So I'm not I'm, I'm not sure what they will do, but I can't imagine that it won't just end up either in reduced benefits within home care or else hurting other kind of public benefits program when you're trying to reshift things around. 
Right. So we might end up defunding hospitals in order to pay for home care. Uh, can you put home care in the context of Medicaid as a whole? Like, because I don't think many people realize that, you know, so much of our Medicaid system is going into this system as opposed to just straight, you know, emergency room care or care for very, very poor people. Yeah. And I, I, because I, I was just kind of really quickly glancing to, through my numbers and I, I don't know like what percent of Medicaid goes to home care. Um, but like in California, I know that, you know, Medicaid serves about a third of the people here and um, which is around 13 million people. And then almost 2 million are seniors and people with disabilities, and like half a million of those, almost half a million of those are IHSS. So that kind of gives you a sense, like if it's two out of 13, roughly we can imagine that that is providing home care, or other kinds of similar supports um, for seniors and people with disabilities. Um, and then within kind of, um, like for those who are kind of needing that support, like the IHSS program, so again, the in-home support services, um, half of the funding comes from national, you know, it comes from Medicaid, and then the other half comes from local, so the counties or the states. So, like on that end, it's like if you're receiving the public support, half of your support is coming from, the, from, from D.C., basically. This is a heavily immigrant workforce and it's heavily women of color um and it's unique because these are union jobs that they otherwise probably wouldn't have in their communities so can you can you talk about what's at stake here in terms of what it will do to the workforce will people lose their jobs will they be cutting pay i mean what's going to happen if healthcare reform happens and um, people who depend on this for their livelihoods and maybe even for care for their own families at the same time, you know, what's going to happen to them? Yeah, I mean, I think they will get hit on both sides. You know, so it is largely a women of color workforce. And then even even before this started, we, we knew from our survey that about half of them, again, for those paying out of pocket, which is one side, and then, you know, the, the ones that are getting public funding are paid better, you know, so they all receive at least minimum wage, um, but still one quarter live under the poverty line and then more of more more than half of those households where there is a home care worker are already on public assistance. The other part is that they are also the ones who are most likely to get covered California or even get Medicaid themselves, you know, like they, they are probably also um, both getting paid through this through, through this system and then also needing support from the system because, you know, they, they're still struggling with, you know, being able to earn enough. Um, but, you know, the, the employers that pay out of pocket, almost half of them were paying low wages, um, which is, you know, just not not enough to kind of sustain the families. So I think that the cuts will both impact their work, you know, in a in um, at least the ones who are getting government funding that that either, you know, both those things that you can happen, which is either the the terms of the work will change so they earn less or that they'll have to cut down um, on the number of workers. And then on the other end, their own ability to be able to access healthcare services for themselves and for their families. For um, immigrant workers in particular, I mean, there are a lot of uh, Filipino Americans who do this work, um, a lot of Latinas. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, immigrant workers have a whole lot other stuff going on to worry about under Trump, too. So how do all these pieces fit together? I mean, if you were, um, you know, if you uh, were an immigrant worker in California right now, I mean, what are you staring down in terms of uh, your home care job and maybe like what's happening to your family members? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we've been hearing from different like kind of even the kind of from the domestic worker side, a mix of things. Like on the one hand, you know, kind of the the fear of you know retaliation, losing jobs, employers kind of changing on them. Um, on one hand, and then on the other hand, kind of more mobilization. You know, just more like here is 
now you know you're getting hit on both sides both in terms of like the the immigration kind of backlash and then also now this healthcare um so that there there's kind of more vigor happening in in the community and able to like kind of respond to this so i kind of feel like like more vulnerability and then also kind of new passions in terms of like doing some things about this. Yeah, I mean, that they were part of the sort of this mass call for immigration reform, too. I mean, that's kind of off the table now, but I mean, it just goes to show you where people are now. You know, just kind of even on the broader issue, it's this last six months have been so painful because it seems like there was stuff moving on the immigration reform. There was stuff moving on healthcare at least slowly, if not, I, you know, the healthcare, the ACA was nothing ideal, you know, by any means, but it was still, you know, taking all these kind of benefits that had been taken away, you know, from the 70s and 80s and starting to slowly chip away and bring them back and then add all the kind of new labor protections that were coming in, and especially for kind of like home care and domestic worker that had been left out, you know, whether it was like overtime pay and then, you know, the wages, the minimum wage increases, getting into things like scheduling. Like it just felt like we were <laughs> going in su like such amazing places in terms of kind of um, really bringing back a lot of the things that have been taken away. And it's just really sad to have it turn around so quickly. Um, and and how much of what, what, what we've achieved, you know, even up until like the end of last year, we can still uphold, you know, and kind of hold on to and how much, how quickly a lot of that will just get stripped away again. And then we're like back at, you know, point one to rebuild them. And that was Savo Ahid of the UCLA Labor Center. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces that we wish we had written this week, but alas, did not. My pick is from Jacobin Magazine. It is called Toward a Marxist Interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. It's my belated, belabored July 4th pick by Bertel Ullman. So how democratic is our Constitution? That was the question that popped up once again as we celebrated another July 4th. My social media feeds were festooned with the perennial memes and blurbs degrading the U.S. as an imperialist superpower, racist world policeman, enemy of women's rights, etc., etc. Independence Day is one of many days when we question the founders' political legacy. It seems no one benefited from declaring independence other than elite white property owners. So what good came out of the American Revolution anyway? Oman admits it was a bourgeois revolution in terms of democracy and law. It left our society really neither here nor there. Even in our grand democratic project, after more than 300 years, we still don't really know what equality before the law really means because we've grown too accustomed to taking law for granted. In reality, Ullman writes, to fully realize democracy's promise, we should value the Constitution not for its consistency, but for its openness to continual challenge and contest. When we celebrated the Fourth growing up, we thought fireworks and George Washington and the First Amendment were basically just about it. Today, of course, many of us on the left can't think about the Constitution without associating it with slavery, dead white men, class oppression, war, oh, and did I mention dead white men? They're all things that are undeniably anathema to what we envision to be a free society. We can't deny those ugly realities of our history or of our present day. And we need to understand the connection between the past and the present in order to build a better future. But constitutionality itself, Ullman warns, is the very mentality that ties us to these disparaging binaries. We either have a great country or a terrible one. But we can't take the law for granted as an incontrovertible, immutable truth. In reality, that merely shows that we've let dead white men win the war over defining freedom for people today. Ullman writes, quote, Can the Constitution serve a people bent on a democratic socialist transformation of capitalist society? 
It has done everything a document could possibly do to forestall such an eventuality. And as the central institutional prop of our capitalist society, it continues to act in this way. And yet, despite its lopsided and deceptive form and the worst elitist intentions of its framers, the changes it has undergone in the past 200 years suggest that the possibility cannot be ruled out. Every amendment to the Constitution, like most new interpretations by the Supreme Court, and each change of emphasis in its administration and enforcement have come about as a result of popular struggle. Neither blacks nor women nor unpropertied males, for example, were simply handed the right to vote. Of course, today the right to vote is being removed from us again, bit by bit, as people, namely our elected officials, manipulate the vagaries of constitutional law in order to enact mass disenfranchisement policies. Our Constitution, sadly, is silent on that, as are the courts in many cases. Ullman's point is that at the end of the day, the more we speak out to fill those gaps in the Constitution, the more we fulfill that one point of agreement that we may truly share with our framers, that the people are sovereign. The framers knew this, and they were frankly scared shitless. He writes, quote, the framers did everything they could consistent with winning acceptance for the document to avoid placing the loaded gun of popular sovereignty in the hands of the people. They had no doubt as to what would happen to the grossly unequal distribution of property in our country should this even occur, unquote. Because, you know, that would be, well, socialism. Of course, the history of people's movements since the signing of the Constitution has been one of contention, often violent struggle, over the power of the ruler and the power of the ruled and what constitutes fairness between them. Our Constitution pointedly does not dictate this for us. It's more of a blank slate than we tend to give it credit for. The dead white dudes claim that their Constitution was written to celebrate we the people, but in reality they structured it in such a way as to preserve the tyranny of the elite and to silence the rest of us. And the elite did this precisely because they understood, even at that time, that they ultimately didn't stand a chance against the power of the people if the power ever really fell into the people's hands. So today we can't right the wrongs of our founding fathers, but we don't have to let them have the last word. The ink, Ullman argues, is not dry on that list of amendments. It's never too late to take back those rights that the Constitution enshrines out of the cold, dead hands of the framers and into our own to be reframed by us, the people. The ink, Ullman argues, is not yet dry on that list of amendments, so it's never too late to take back those rights that the Constitution codifies take it back out of the cold, dead hands of the framers and into our own to be reframed and reshaped by us, the people. This week I had a little bit of a trouble thinking of an ARG, and then I did something that I'm doing more and more these days, which is read Richard Seymour's blog on his Patreon page. All of the cool kids have a Patreon these days, it seems. In any case, Seymour, a UK-based journalist and the author of a recent book on Jeremy Corbyn, has a piece up called Your Incorrect Theory of Class that focuses on a current obsession of mine, one that I touched on last episode's ARG on Gabriel Winant's piece. For those of you who don't follow UK politics as closely as I do, this piece hinges on something that is a little obscure, the way that pollsters in the UK divide and define classes. In the US, of course, we seem to cling to the myth of being a classless society until election time when everybody obsesses on the white working class, but we tend to think that the UK is much clearer about its class divisions. Indeed, it's got a fairly standardized social grade system that divides people into roughly six blocks that are supposed to break down into working class and middle class. By that methodology, Seymour notes, it's simply impossible to extract any useful meaning from Jeremy Corbyn's unexpected success in the recent elections, and you can see our episode 129 for more on that. And yet, as Gabe Winant's piece that I talked about last week notes, class composition around the world itself is changing. As former belabored guest Paul Mason noted in 2011, a major component of the protest movements around the globe that year and onward was the graduate with no future, the person with a college degree who found themselves in the post-financial crisis world, saddled with increasing debt in a job at Starbucks or no job at all in harder hit countries. Thus, age became a proxy for class in a way that simple readings of class by the color of one's collar or one's degree achievement don't map. As Seymour notes, 
quote, first, what is the middle class in the middle of? Where is the upper class? Where is the class of employers and owners? If there is no upper, then what we're calling the middle is the upper, which is absurd. Second, what does it mean to be in the middle? According to this standard reading of the social grades scheme, the middle includes everyone in white collar work from clerical workers to professionals, supervisors, and senior managers. This surely is an illusory leveling, as if to say everyone who works in a call center from the receptionist to the chief, ex chief executive is middle class. The world evoked in this conception of class isn't really the modern world where there even are such things as call centers. It is a world in which workers use their hands and leave the brain work to their social betters. Therefore, as long as you don't use your hands or if you have a degree, you can be patronizingly called middle class even when you're working precarious shifts for minimum wage." End quote. This is a problem, of course, that we have in the U.S. as well, social grades or no. As Seymour notes, such grading assumes that the, quote, knowledge economy and the service economy are not really working class, that they are the same thing. Meaning that that illusory leveling he mentioned sweeps more people into the middle class, even as real living standards, and more importantly, people's real power decline. This, he points out, leads to the idea that politics is simply a set of consumer choices in a market, one of the key ideas that goes into the ideology of neoliberalism. But classes are shifting, as we have noted in today's show, we discussed and talked with home care workers and nurses, service workers at the airport, alongside an old school, perhaps the oldest school in most people's minds, category of factory workers, auto workers. But auto workers in this case at the Nissan plant, whose jobs were shifted to the U.S. South in order to avoid the unions, jobs that are turned into temp jobs that face the very same conditions that home care workers face. The working class is still very real. It's just that elites have no idea who is actually in it or how to talk about it. But that is, of course, what we are here for. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks again for all your support and a special thank you to our sustaining members who give monthly donations to keep us on the air. You can make a monthly or one-time donation to belabored at descentmagazine.org and if you give $5 a month or more, you can get your excellent belabored tote bag. You will find links to everything we discussed today at the Descent website. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a home care worker or factory worker, if your health care is at risk or if you provide it to others, if you are a newspaper writer or a new union-based newspaper owner, if you went on strike this week or just thought about it. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>